Today we sit with two of my childhood friends, Richie and Rango Lee, both of Vietnamese American descent and both entrepreneurs. In this two-part episode, we discuss Rango's journey starting Warring Properties and Richie's YouTube empire, built from his love of Vietnamese culture, streetwear, and sneakers. We hope you enjoy. What's up, everybody? I go by the name of Domo. And I go by the name of Yoshiko. We sit with entrepreneurs and artists across disciplines to share their stories, insight, and gems. Their journey will inspire you to think about community and your own narrative, how it shapes who you are, and what your legacy will be. You're listening to No Blueprint. No Blueprint. No Blueprint. No Blueprint. You are listening to No Blueprint. What would be the title of either a biopic or the biography about your lives? My story title would be Bless Boulder. Mm. Bless Boulder. Okay, explain that. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm a boulder. (laughs) (laughs) I came over from Vietnam when I was two or three years old on the refugee boats escaping the war. And uh, I'm blessed, you know, I came real far. So, yeah, coming of age story. So, Bless Boulder. Nice. Uh, for myself, I would say uh, when you asked that question on the email, my first uh, thought was The Family Man with Nicolas Cage. Have you seen that movie? Mm-hmm. Basically, there's like a point in his life where he could either go to this really successful career or he could just live like a really normal life and there's really no meaning behind it. And there's two paths he could cross. And uh, I always kind of think about that when I think about like my journey and everything like could have went this way or really could have went that way so it, it like even flashes back and he lives like this other life and he's like wait where's my old life mm. and I kind of think about that like even when I moved away right. which we'll get to uh, later maybe yep. you're always thinking about what you're missing out on and stuff so okay Rango I want to start with you sure. you talked about coming over from Vietnam you remember Vietnam as a child or how old were you I was probably one when we left Vietnam okay and no, I don't remember anything about that. I just hear stories about how we came over. My mom still remembers, which is good. And then she's a little older now, so we want to try to get all the information we can so I can pass it down to my son and our grandkids and stuff. So, no, it, it was tough. That's what I remember. It was, we almost didn't make it a couple times. And uh, crazy, she's you know single mother. I think she was upper tw- 27, 28 with three small kids. Okay. Like... That don't happen. You don't. You don't really do that in Vietnam. Right. Leaving, you know, and make it. We were from the South Vietnam, so that's, we were from this town called Gat uh, Yeah, Rat Yeah, and uh, it was on the coast. And we we lost the South lost, right? Mm-hmm. The North came down, the communists, and they won, and the Americans left, and we were still there trying to just uh, piece together life and no no resources. Everyone was struggling, and and so my mom didn't want that for us she's like I gotta go I gotta get, get my kids to a better place so, and she did and just took all took three kids three kids small one three and six I heard there was a uh, boat that my mom was supposed to get on with Rango and everybody but Rango was being like too loud or something <laughs> like that and they didn't get on that boat yeah and then that boat never they don't know what happened to that boat it's so my mom what? had like friends on it yeah so. it sunk in the storm Stop. yeah they t- we were supposed to get on, and because uh, like was Rango, it was because you were being like fussy. Yeah, right? I was one, and probably you know freaking malnourished and having <laughs> you know cold probably, and uh, I was a whinier baby than usual. That's what my mom said, and it, that's a risk bringing a small baby in the middle right. of the night in the ocean trying mm-hmm. to leave Vietnam. So they left us. They, they 
we I don't I don't remember we gave them the gold or not, but they left us when they were we were supposed to get on and then we found out that boat sunk in a storm. Oh, that's yeah. confirmed? Yeah, yeah, uh, mom, mom said that. That's so, crazy. Who knows? There's a bigger reason why we, we're still here. So, Listen. hey, bless Boulder, man. Right. Hey, <laughs> you know what I mean? There it is. Maybe that can be God's the plan. That could be the opening scene. That's the opening scene right there. right there. Damn. Did your mom know anyone here in the States? Yeah, so my dad, you know, he was around. He... We tried a couple of times leaving out the family with him, my mom, and three kids, mm-hmm. and and we tried a couple of times, and we almost didn't make it as a family. So my dad said, "Hey, let me just go first. I'll get to America, and then I'll sponsor you guys over." <laughs> and and that's what he did. And then my mom didn't hear from him for about a year, and so we're thinking maybe he passed away or something happened. And she's like, I just can't wait no more. Things are falling apart everywhere. Right. And I don't, I don't know what happened to them. So I can't just wait. I, I got to go. So, and then when we got to the refugee camp in Thailand, we finally made it there. We were there for about a year, year and a half. And then we found out my dad just left the refugee camp um, probably a couple of months before we got there. So we're like, okay, cool. You know, he, he made it. He's alive. He's here. And then he got to America first. And then he sponsored us over to Fort Smith, Arkansas, and that's how we got over. Crazy. I forgot Richie was born in Arkansas. Arkansas. So how long were you in Arkansas? We were there for 10 years. That's where Richie was born. Yeah, first 10 years. (laughs) I had no idea. So what part of Arkansas? Fort Smith, Arkansas. Okay. Mm -hmm. Chicken capital of the world. There's pictures of Richie... uh, Holding chickens and running around with chickens and cockfights and all that. When yeah. we My parents had a, uh, they had a, uh, a uh, all-you-could-eat restaurant. What? Mm-hmm. All-you-could-eat Chinese restaurant. Mm-hmm. I had no oh. idea. Yeah, so, wait. And so Jackie was, uh, our oldest sister was, like, the manager at, like, 10 years old. <laughs> <laughs> so, we goes, okay, so Jackie's number one. Jackie's number, uh, no, no, well, no, no, no. There's, Jitung was the oh, one. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's our right. oldest sister, and then Jackie was second oldest, but... Okay. We left Ji Tuong back in Vietnam, which is kind of another crazy story. story. Yeah, somewhere. she's the oldest, but we left her back for some reasons. Yeah. And she's your grandma, now. right? She stayed with our grandma. Yeah, okay. you're right. Yeah. Um, she uh, she was the oldest. She was nine, and she grew up with my grandma mainly because when you're um, when you're in poverty and you're trying to struggle just to make a living. Um, you couldn't watch the kids, right? Because right. so you had to go out and hustle. And my mom sold gasoline. That was her hustle on the wow. side, illegally, right? Yeah. So our oldest sister, Ji Tung, she was watched by my grandma to kind of take the burden off my mom having to watch so many kids. So she grew up with her and got really tight with her. Yeah. And then we were leaving for Vietnam. My grandma said, hey, and this was kind of normal for a lot of families to do that, leave one kid back mm-hmm. in case this group don't make it, then there's always somebody still left. Mm-hmm. And she was so close to my grandma, she, she couldn't leave her. So she stayed back. Okay. And that's why. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then Jackie and then Johnny? And John, yep. Jackie okay. and John. Okay. Yeah, they're the two oldest. That's, yeah, us three is the one that left with my mom okay. when we were little. Got it. After being sponsored by a church to come to America, Rango, Jackie, Johnny, and their mother would reunite with their father. They'd open their first business, a Chinese restaurant in Fort Smith, Arkansas. This is where Richie and his sister Julie would later be born. After their family had been there for more than 10 years, they followed their pastor and moved to Seattle's Northgate neighborhood. Y'all came to Kent mm-hmm. and you rented the house across the street from my house. Oh yeah. Which is how I met y'all. Mm-hmm. Whitney Glenn. That was Whitney the community. Glenn, yes. Mm-hmm. 
So you come over, Richie, you had to be what, six? I was uh, second grade. Second grade, so six or seven? Yeah. I'm going back, timeline. So you yeah. went North Seattle and then went to Kent. Yeah. Is that okay? Oh, Shoreline, then Kent. Okay. Shoreline. North and, Seattle, Shoreline. And we didn't just go. Like, we, we got... Kicked out of the, we got kicked out of the hood. I don't know. Okay, and who gets kicked story. out of the hood, right? <laughs> so then we got kicked out of the hood, and then we, yeah, we got kicked out. <laughs> and then they put us on Section Eight. Yeah. Section Eight is that uh, program where they help pay for your rent mm-hmm. if you rent a house. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we got kicked out. Mean, we were we were too, we were troublemakers. We were See a little little ruffians. <laughs> and they kicked us out, man. <laughs> yeah, and every yeah. but you know it's crazy. All the kids in the hood do stuff right yeah. but we just got caught and uh, uh, so they kicked us out and then like... that's how we ended up sexually but actually it was a blessing in disguise because we got out of the hood right, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> it was our uh, come up story you that's know? real so when one closes one one ghetto door closes another door opens exactly. in the suburb hey, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and there it is <laughs> and there it is so you live how long in shoreline we lived there for about three years. That that was definitely, I think, our turning point mm-hmm. as a family because we were still on Section Eight. Then I don't remember. All of a sudden, my parents were coming home with this food, burgers and fries, and they would just leave it in the refrigerator for a couple of days. I'm like, "Where does this food come from?" Because we don't get food, right? right. And then they, they, I found out they were working on a catering truck, or you know, one of the mobile catering trucks in Kent. Mm-hmm. They said, "Hey, you know, we should we should maybe buy one." And open up a, a family business and get out of the the system, which yeah. is you know the, the Section Eight and getting uh, food stamps and that yeah. stuff. And so they took the leap of faith to get out off the system to wow. to start this catering truck, and that's why we moved to Kent. Yeah. And um, you know the system's a funny thing though too, right? Because it was hard for us, and I, because if you're in the system, you only can make so much money. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 mm. it it's weird. It's like this weird pickle where. You make too much money, then you're off the system. Now you gotta make it on your own. Right. And that's the decision my mom made, which really saved our family. Mm-hmm. Or she could have just stayed in the system and but got this help and support. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and it's safe. But you're always in the system. You're in this poverty system, and you know. Right. So it was right. it was an interesting thing. The system. Do you remember the name of the food truck that your parents worked on? Yeah. Oh, so our last name Lee. So it was, uh, it was first Lee's Catering, and then it was On the Go Catering, right? Yeah. Was the name of your your mom's food um, food truck, or was the name of the one that they worked on first? Oh no, I don't remember the name of that truck, okay. but it's definitely a, a truck. Some of these trucks don't even have names. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> they just pulled up. Yeah, it wasn't as hip it is, as it is now. Yeah, back right. then. branding back then. <laughs> so just about the food. So, okay, you're right. You're right. You're right. Food you're right. trucks were a thing. It's a different type of food truck. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. So wait, so it so was the food truck different. you were like embarrassed about. Yeah, like, so I'm serious. What was. year was this? When we first got onto the food truck, and we yeah, not, yeah, and route right around '97. I was gonna say yeah, yeah, and thank you for pointing that out because now food trucks are hella hip, and everybody, yeah. everybody got a, a food yeah, truck. It's a different food truck. Yeah, the food truck before school. Right. Yeah. Yes. Not when we was working on it. Man, so t- so okay. So one of the one of the things that um, I spoke to y'all about um, earlier, and the reason why I think that this interview is so dope and so important is like the center around the food truck that your parents ran, and just the fact that both of y'all are entrepreneurs now. Like, tell me what those early years and the first years were like that y'all can remember, and tell me about like the first time y'all had to work on 
the food truck. Earliest memory was we you had to wake up at butt crack of dawn to work the food truck. We were talking about five o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And for and I was at the time I was probably eighteen, and that was tough. That was probably the toughest thing about the truck is waking up so early because you're trying to really grab that um, breakfast crowd. Mm-hmm. And right around one o'clock, you're done. You're, you're closing out shop. Lunch is over, uh, and then you go home at one or two. It was stinky. You smell like fried French fries and deep fried burritos all day, and it's greasy. You know, oh, it's, what kind of sorry? Yo, please. What kind of food did you serve? <laughs> it's all. It was a mix. It was like <laughs> you know, it, there was no direction on it. It was just whatever my mom and dad thought of that day. That's what we made. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. You know, burgers, fries, and then you had the Mexican stuff. You had like uh, tacos and burritos, and then you had breakfast, regular American breakfast stuff, yeah. and then Chinese stuff. We, cause they still, we used to own that Chinese restaurant, so they still knew how to make some fried rice dishes with chicken on it, and, and a lot of deep fried stuff like corn dogs and burritos. You're serving like a lot of uh, truck drivers, people yeah. like that work kid. like you know factor, factory jobs. Right. No. Um, yeah, so. it does. Yeah, labor job. That's yeah. that was our number one clientele. You yeah. know, yeah. So they they need the calories. And yeah. They wasn't picky about what they ate, right? Cause Yo, you don't know how many monsters and Red Bulls <laughs> like that. People don't eat breakfast; they drink like three monsters, man. Yeah. Because they gotta stay up. Yeah. 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 That's real. That's so real. Then you went to Kent Ridge. Yeah. At eighteen, you had. It's safe to say that you had options, right? But you chose to go help your parents on the food truck. What made you decide that? Because most 18-year-olds would be like, yo, I'm out. I got my freedom. Mm-hmm. I had no options. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't an option. They were like, you get up at 5 and you, you're working on the truck. That, that's your option. Yeah. Or, um, or uh, things are going to happen. So <laughs> and that's what I did. I, you know, I got up and helped them on the truck. Um, that's what's up. Yeah. When did you start working on your parents' food truck? I would say, uh, what was this, like around like 20, 21? Okay. 21-ish? Okay. 20? So you got some time to just be a kid. I would, I would be around, <laughs> but I didn't really like, you know, I wasn't working. I would just like help out here and there, but to actually like do full days and everything. Yeah. It was around like 2021. 20, okay. So let me, let's, 20? Yeah. So we'll, we'll come back to that. Yeah. We'll come back to that. I want to know from your end like growing up and knowing all this, seeing where everything was, what was it like for you? Because I know you also have a, your sister Julie, who's between you and Richie, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. What was so? Tell me what that was like, just growing up in Kent and understanding like the story of compared to your brothers and sisters, like mm-hmm. you got to live the most normal life out of everybody else. Yeah, I think for me, I kind of like took a step back growing up. I really took my time, and obviously, like. Like you said, I had a lot of influences growing up, obviously, like with my family, growing up in Kent. There's a lot of influences and you just kind of, I didn't, I don't think I really acted on anything until I was maybe like 20 something. Mm -hmm. I didn't really like pick a side. I didn't really do something crazy. I just kind of like chilled and went through the motions, I would say for the most part. If you want to fast forward to later and what I'm doing now, that's when I was like, man, I have so many influences in my life. I got to take that and make something out of it. So. Did you feel any pressure from family? Was there any pressure to be like, listen, go to college and get a... Nah, because uh, it wasn't so uh, definite. It wasn't so like concrete. Like It wasn't like I came from a family of like five scholarly 
um, students or anything like there was influences like in like I would say it was a really like grab bag type of family you know obviously you have Jackie you have John I really had the freedom to do whatever I wanted to do like right. everybody can give their two cents but no one's like yo you have to go to this college you know how like some families are like you got to go yeah. to where your parents went to it's it wasn't like that um, so I had a lot of freedom and kind of just took my time right and so t for you Rango when did you move to Seattle so that's I was living with my parents to about 21 years old mm -hmm. and and I was still working on the catering truck and I was uh, I was party promoting I, I got in when I was about 18 helped out uh, my good buddy Amir he had a production company it was like eight of us that helped throw nightclub events and raves and and then when I turned 21, that broke up and I had opportunity to, to do my own nightclub. It's called the Royal Club in uh, Skyway. Now they call it the, Ro now it's the Roman Casino if any, anyone knows about uh, Skyway. And then, so I was making money and I was like, I'm, I'm out. I'm gonna go get an apartment with uh, my buddy and uh, that's when I flew the coop. Yeah. I was, I felt famous. <laughs> I, was, yeah. I was a local, uh, local celebrity, man. Yeah. Um, you know, that's you're at the age where you're starting to figure out who you want to be, and then you know, ego and cockiness plays a lot, a big part in it because you're a young man, and um, and you're starting to get the first taste of real success. You know, where uh, you, you were making money on your own, and uh, girls were just everywhere, and they're drunk, and so they all want to get into your club, and you know, be be with the main promoter, and guys wanted to hang out with you because it was a fun life, and. And uh, yeah, I felt famous, man. It was it was a good time. So it, everyone, I, a lot of people I know now, I still remember from those days, and I still keep in touch with a lot of people. So um, it, it was it was good times. So it was I don't want to say golden years, because now it's still my golden years. But it was it was a good young man uh, career because at that age you're partying anyways. You know, most of us so are. Pay for it. Yeah, but we're getting I'm getting paid for it. You know, and then. You get status in the community, you go wherever, and they all let you in free and skip yeah. the line, and it was cool. How long, oh, oh, how long did you do that for? So I started with Amir when I was about 18, but I didn't do anything on my own, and then from, I ventured off on my own production company, it was called uh, Blaze Entertainment, because we were blazing a lot back then, <laughs> uh, to a shout out to all the 420s. Okay. <laughs> and so from 21 till 26, Six, I I was a promoter and owned a nightclub and yeah. It was. I remember we got to meet uh, some DJs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, me and Richie would. Uh, Richie was like, "You want to go to Wrangler's apartment with me?" I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> and so like we went there. They had all this like recording equipment. Like, what are y'all guys doing? Oh, we're recording a drop for Cube ninety three. And I was like, "What?" Yeah, it seemed <laughs> crazy like, back then. Yeah, super crazy. I forgot. Um, uh, Asia. Asia. Ooh. Asia. Asia. DJ Ecstasy. DJ X. Yes. Mia was Mia, there. Mia Guzman, yeah. shout out. Mia yeah. X. So Good many times. Network. Mm. Right? Of like, even when it was something that's completely different than what you do now, you still have those connections with those networks. What was that like coming, I guess, back to Seattle as an older person? I guess, well, not even older, but I guess like, <coughs> as a young man. Versus like being a kid. Mm. Well, now you're an adult and you're, I felt like I was running the town. You know, we uh, felt good. We, we, we did what we wanted. We stayed out all night. We blazed. We 
went to parties. And, you know, some people just run, have that phase through college for a year or two. But I, I, I it was work for me. So I did it for seven years as a career. Right. And uh, it was a blessing and a curse, you know. It was, uh, you know, you see a lot of things when you're out there. And you remember what mom said, nothing good happens after midnight. And it's true. And midnight. After huh? midnight, you know, you should probably be home at 11.59 and you're still in the good side. Yeah. Past midnight. So you see a lot of things. But then it's a, it's a gift and a curse. You know, you, you, you get exciting life, you know. Um, but you run around with the night crawlers and, you know, you don't, they don't make the best decision that you don't either after midnight. Hey everybody, this is Philip Deng from No Blueprint Season 1, Episode 6. Just wanted to tell you that my nonprofit, Market Share, is launching a campaign called 100,000 Founders. We're raising $100,000 from 100,000 people donating $1 each as co-founders of King Street Market. This is the first time anybody's crowdfunded a public market. So we need you to go to our website, marketshareseattle.org, to be able to contribute $1 to our Kickstarter campaign and become a founder. It's that simple. Today, May 2nd, we've got 30 days until the campaign ends, and we need 100,000 people to pledge as co-founders. So check it out and enjoy No Blueprint. What kept you grounded? Uh, I don't... I mean, I was pretty uh, out there at that age, so I don't know if I was too grounded. Um, but definitely, I always, there was always uh, God in my life, and I always knew He was there, you know, the, Jesus. I always, I always felt like He had my back and my family's back, and uh, so I always had that spiritual side. And I think, overall, I was always a, uh, I still, I think I'm a good person, so then I never wanted to, like, hurt someone, or, like, you know, I always wanted people to, to do good and, and get blessed and stuff. But, you know, I mean... But when you're in that age and you're running around with your crew and you feel like you guys are lions, you know, you get tested by other group crews. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have to fight back, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes if someone tries to disrespect you or do something and you just have to hold your own or you right. get punked, yeah. you know. So we didn't want we, we didn't want that to happen. That's for real. That's for real. Tell me about like the beginnings of YouTube and like what gave you that idea and how did you go from there? Basically, I think it's important to, if I'm going to bring up the YouTube to acknowledge, like, even, like, the past, like, even all the influences I had growing up, when it came to, like, music or entertainment, Mm -hmm. even my brother doing, like, uh, the club promoting and just entertainment in general, I remember, like, he even told me back then, like, yo, Rich, we're going to sign you to Blaze Records, (laughs) and even if there was no real structure... It had me thinking, like, whoa, that sounds tight. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like a, a record label. I remember, you, you know, like Soulify and, like, yeah. you know, he, Asia and everybody. And just stuff like that had a real big impact on my life. And obviously, you and you you were the one. Actually, Dominique was the first one that told me, man, you need to get some Nikes <laughs> or some Jordans. Because you guys had Jordans. Yeah. Your dad had Jordans. And I, I remember I was still in, like, L.A. gear in second grade. And he was like, uh, I my mom bought me some black Nikes, and then I came back, and you're like, those aren't the right ones, man. <laughs> <laughs> those aren't the right ones. Hold on, Neek was hipping you to the Neek was the first one that told me I needed Jordans and Nikes. <laughs> but I didn't get the right ones. And then I remember, I it was like a story. year later, he, he uh, showed me a picture of the right ones to get, and it was the playoff Jordan 12s. Mm. And then Jackie... Uh, so dad gave my sister like a hundred bucks. Jackie took me to the mall and bought me the Jordan toys. Nice. Anyways, that was my first Jordan. <laughs> anyway, so like, you know, it was like influences like that that I really remember. Yeah. 
YouTube came about, uh, my good friends, the Phone Brothers, they're pretty big on YouTube right now. I think they have like a couple million subscribers. Mm -hmm. They were like my childhood friends growing up along with Neek. I met them in third grade and they had a huge influence. Like we used to make like songs really like for fun back then and. Oh, and so that's why you wanted to sign him. Yeah, we used to Got make it. songs. Got yeah, it. yeah, okay. So it's just like, we always kind of had fun with it, but never really like, yo, how are you actually gonna make money off of it? And then uh, I remember graduating from college and David or Andrew were already in LA pursuing YouTube. And they, at the time, they didn't have that many subscribers. It seemed like a lot back then. Like when I moved down, I was like, well, they, they made it, but we really didn't make it. We lived in like a, a back home. You know, in California, they have like a, they have a house, but then they have a little back home in the mm -hmm. alley. Like the mother-in-law. I lived in like a closet. <laughs> and uh, my manager always brings a story up when she uh, talks to people sometimes. I lived in a closet like a third of this size Damn. in that house when I first moved to LA. Anyways, so yeah, they were already in LA doing their thing and um, they really like gave me the blueprint. I'm not gonna lie. Like David told me, you know, I could give you the tools, but I'm not gonna build the house for you. <laughs> and I always looked at David kind of like a, um, kind of like a tough love, you know what I mean? Like me and him always used to bump heads. Me and Andrew, his younger brother, were more like friends, you know, like more mm -hmm. friends, but David was always kind of like more mentor slash friend. And he was like, yo, I could give you the tools, but you gotta build a house for yourself. After college, I uh, quit a marketing job at Talking Rain, and then I sold my car, and then told my family I'm moving. <laughs> so I moved down to LA to pursue YouTube. Yeah. And then um, we just all kind of try to come up together. Yeah. When did the real estate thing start for you? Yeah, I, I was running, I was doing promoting for seven, eight years now, mm -hmm. and this was 2000, so I was promoting from about the year 1999 to 2026. And yeah, I totally forgot that Richie uh, was signing my label. <laughs> and yeah, I started, at the end there, I started a record label. I had uh, three or four artists on there and a DJ and a producer. and. We were throwing concerts too, so I, I kind of forgot about that because yeah. it was just the last two years of my promoting career, yeah. and that was fun. We didn't really do too much with the label side. We, and I think that's how Richie got into it a little because we were throwing concerts and nightclubs, and him and I guess you now was coming around. And when he was young, 12, 13, performing at a twenty-one and over nightclub, hanging out, mm -hmm. you know, I was I was the promoter, so I got him in. So I, I think he was exposed to entertainment at a young age, mm -hmm. and I think that's why he's successful now and he's comfortable around it because he was young doing it. I was promoting and it's, a lot of bad things were happening around me, and I felt like God was saying, "Hey, you should get out of this career soon." And I was, and I was at the top. I mean, if you're talking about like the Asian promoting company scene in Seattle, there was probably eight, nine promoting companies. We were the, at the top at the time. We had. You know, cracking nights on Fridays, Saturdays, Wednesdays. We're making a lot of money. Our, our clubs are usually more packed. And I was like, why would I get out right now? I'm at the peak, you know. My security guard got shot at one of my nightclubs by one of my childhood friends from the hood, from Cedarville. They, they were coming around supporting the club and partying. I was letting them on free. And, you know, they're, they're thugs. And they came in and um, there was a big old fight happened. And... Uh, they shot one of my security guards right right in front of me. Wow. And uh, and then, you know, he, I thought he was gonna pass. And uh, it was right by his heart. I was, so I remember I was, we were breaking up fights. It was like a, like 20 on 20 fight. It was a huge fight. And mm -hmm. I was trying to break it up. And we we're all trying to break it up. And then I heard a boom, 
like right behind me. So everyone just stopped. We knew it was a gunshot. We yeah. and uh, we turned around. It was it was outside. It was like on the streets. And I turned around and and then it was like smoke. And then right out of that smoke came my security guard. This guy named Big Pete, Samoan dude. And he just came and he was holding his chest. And he walked up to me and he like I was well, I was you know I was skinny guy back then. I was promoting and he fell on me. He's like, Rango, I'm shot. And like he's he's like lean falls on me to hold him and then he's he's a big Samoan right. so then I couldn't hold him and I just like lay him on the ground and blood is coming out of his chest and his hand and he's then he's like and he was still on point though too he was like he, he reached into his jacket and go hold my gun <laughs> so he still remember you know I don't know maybe it's a hot piece or something yeah. it's like damn bro alright so I put it in my pocket and we're holding him and everyone stops fighting because someone just got shot right. you know so and then all of a sudden I don't know what happened but the the cops were already there, detective. They're just like watching our club. I don't even know why. And they right. they charge and tackle the guy. That my, what do you mean my, you don't know why? Well, we we're, were probably <laughs> we we're probably hot boys, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're hot boys. I don't know. So he got arrested, and then we were. So then I was like, "F, I got, I got, a, I got a piece on me." So while all this is going on, I run into the back of the club and I throw the piece into the bushes, yeah. you know. And then I come back and then. Um, Everyone's around him, and uh, and then so we're in the hospital, we're in mercy room now, and it's like four in the morning, and then his wife's there with his kid. Sorry, to be continued. This concludes the first part of this two-part interview. If you liked what you heard, be sure to donate so we can keep going. We are on SoundCloud, iTunes, and YouTube, so be sure to subscribe, rate, and comment. You have no idea how much it helps. We also want to know what you think. You can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can even use the hashtag NoBlueprint. And if you're really down with the movement, you can join our Patreon account and become a patron, where you'll get exclusive content and limited edition merchandise. NoBlueprint is powered by Ambassador Stories. We share stories of the people, places, and spaces that bring soul to our communities. NoBlueprint is recorded at Ambassador Stories Studios and co-produced with me, Maya Aina. Hear more episodes of No Blueprint and get official No Blueprint merchandise at noblueprintpodcast.com.